go to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we'll be. Um, I'll try to keep this a tad shorter this morning. Those are famous last words for a preacher, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, I love Christmas. I enjoy the Christmas season. I enjoy the get-togethers. I enjoy the gifts. I enjoy the lights. Um, I enjoy the movies. I ain't going to lie. Don't judge me, please, but I might watch Elf later today. Um, you know, there, there's, here's the thing. In, in, uh, we obviously need to be discerning with what the culture says about Christmas and, you know, just being a holiday, obviously. I don't think I need to explain that to anyone. Um, but what's interesting is that in a lot of the cultural holiday trappings, you see a shadow of the truer, better story. Even in secular movies, I'm not in any way, you know, saying these are, these are Christian movies, but, you know, I, I like the movie Elf. Um, you see this little, this little shadow of the truer story, like, is Buddy going to be restored to his father? You know, Kevin McAllister in Home Alone. Is he going to realize that family and relationships are more important than presents or anything else? Little Ralphie with his Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> is that really going to fulfill the longing of his heart? And again, they're silly and they're secular, but they're shadows of the true better story. And the better story, and I'll just answer that question um, right from the beginning, is that those longings of our heart, they will only be satisfied in Jesus. They will only be satisfied in Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that God has called us to worship him. He has created us to worship him. He has made us for this, and it is good news that we get to come to him through the sacrifice of his son, to be with him, to abide with him forever. Jesus said at the end of his life in John chapter 17 that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true and living God. That is eternal life, folks, that we get to know him. Now last week in Matthew, um, again, we're just in Matthew chapter one last week here, and then we're gonna be in Matthew chapter two today, or at least the first part of it. We, we see that Matthew is writing to introduce us to this king. And so last week, for those of you that were here, Matthew, he introduces us to this king, and this king Jesus, who's a different type of king. His point in chapter one is that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David, the descendant uh, to whom God had made this covenant, that David would have uh, a descendant sit on the throne forever, and it is Jesus. But he's not but just a king. He's a different type of king. He's a king that came to die for our sins and to set us free from the slavery and the bondage of sin and of this world system in which we find ourselves. And so he's a king that can't, comes humbly, and he's a king that came to die. And the way into his kingdom is through dying with him, by faith in him, trusting him, pledging your allegiance to him. And Matthew's continuing at the outset of his gospel to introduce us to this king. And while last week he kind of talked a little bit about uh, where this king come, comes from and who he was and the type of king that he was, I believe that in this passage today, in Matthew chapter 2, he's going to, to show us what the right response is to this king. And to, and to his kingdom. Now, now, please understand, no place do we probably need to be more discerning with, um, 
all the cultural trappings and the sentimentality that comes along with a holiday uh, like, like Christmas than when we come to the scriptures, okay? Because we're going to talk about the wise men this morning and, and part of their story that I'm sure many of us are, are familiar with. But again, you talk about wise men. If I just say the word wise men, even if it's, if it's April, if it's May, if it's August, when you talk about the wise men from scripture, your mind instantly goes to Christmas, right? It instantly goes to Christmas because it's about the only time of year that we talk about the wise men. But please understand that in Matthew's mind, as he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and as he's writing down these inspired words to introduce us to Jesus, to introduce us to the king, nowhere in his mind does he have thoughts of Christmas cards or nativity scenes or of sentimental holidays. He is writing to introduce us to this king and to show us what the right response to this king and his kingdom is. And I believe that the wise men are an example of what the right response to this kingdom is. So let me jump in here in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read a little bit, explain a little bit, and then I just want to bring out two implications afterwards for us uh, to take away. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. Now, who were these wise men? Okay, there's a lot of speculation on this. The word is, uh, is literally magi in the Greek. I do think um, there's a pretty strong case that can be made, is that these men, if you're familiar with the Bible, were much like Daniel and some of the men that we see in the book of Daniel chapter 2. Now, you don't have to turn there. You can turn there if you want. But if you, just very quickly, jumping back to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king in the world at that time. Um, he's not just a king like Herod, who is kind of a regional king. He's pretty much king of the whole world, okay? Babylon was one of the most powerful empires that ever existed, and Nebuchadnezzar is the head of it. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that troubles him, and he calls all the wise men of the kingdom, and they're literally called that in Daniel chapter 2, three different places in Daniel chapter 2, two times, uh, once in verse 12, once in verse 13, and also in verse 24. Um, in other places, he refers to them as the satraps and the precepts and the Chaldeans, and, but they were basically these wise men that a king would have in his court to give him counsel. Almost every king uh, throughout history and also throughout the Bible, it's kind of like today the president has his cabinet members, you know, and they do whatever they do, they give him counsel. The king would have counselors around him to help make decisions. But Nebuchadnezzar, you know, asks, uh, he, he's troubled by this dream that he has, and he does, if you guys know the story, he doesn't just want to, um, them to interpret the dream, he wants them to tell them the dream, and then he wants them to interpret the dream for them. And the, these wise men say, you know, there's nobody that can do this. Uh, but of course, Daniel um, and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they seek the Lord in prayer. And God graciously gives an answer to Nebuchadnezzar and to his dream. Now, I say all that, back to Matthew chapter 2, because that's probably who these wise men were. Not those exact men from Babylon. Babylon is kind of a, a debunked kingdom at this point. But they are people, they are men that would spend their time in the court of a king from another land. Okay, And now here they come on the scene, and they've been watching the stars, and this is part of, part of what they do. It says, in verse 2, it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they roll into town, and please, you've got to understand this. This was quite the entourage. There were not just three kings, as the song says, you know, we three kings. We just draw that out, we extrapolate that out from the fact that there were three gifts that they're going to give to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they had traveled probably somewhere between five and 900 miles 
from one of the kingdoms of Persia or the east somewhere, and they'd come, and there was probably a whole crew of them, and I think you can see this in some of the, uh, some of the nuance that you see here in the text. They come rolling into town, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now verse 3 says, when Herod heard, th- heard this, Herod is, is the regional king. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now that little phrase, all Jerusalem with him, means that like the whole city had heard about these guys. So they hadn't just come kind of walking in low key. Like they came in with a lot of pomp and probably a lot of prestige and they go and they kind of demand a meeting with the king, which not just anybody could do, but because they seem to um, uh, have some sort of air of, of kind of royalty or, or importance or ambassadorship about them, they get a meeting with Herod and they come in and they ask him, they're like, where's the king? King of the Jews. And Herod is troubled by this, and all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. You're like, why would they be troubled? Because Herod was crazy. That's why. Herod was straight up crazy. And Herod is a picture of the nastiness of all that man is when man tries tries to hold on to power and make a name for himself. Uh, Very very quickly, Herod uh, Herod had at least five wives, um, he had one of them along with three of his sons at one point murdered because he was consumed uh, and paranoid that they might be with the thought that they might be trying to usurp his throne uh, and, and take over. And so he was willing to um, even kill those closest to him in order to hold on to power. And so when Herod hears that there might be another king, and Jerusalem hears that Herod heard that there might be another king, they're like, this is not, this is not going to go well. And it doesn't, really, as the story goes on. And so Herod and all Jerusalem are troubled with him, verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so Herod kind of assembles his own assembly of wise men here, made up of the chief priests and the scribes and others of the people. And again, he inquires, of them, well, is there a prophecy about this king that's to come? And the answer is yes. Verse 5, uh, Matthew quotes from the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. says, And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, 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 Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word. In other words, he gives lip service to the fact that he wants to worship Jesus, but he doesn't actually want to worship Jesus. He's not willing to look for him himself. He's not willing to search for him. And he says that I too may come worship him, but it's a lie. He wants to destroy him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped. And again, I know we're 
we, we might be used to it on some level, but please just pull yourself out of the sentimentality of the holiday for just a second. Again, some, you know, we see the, we see the uh, nativity scenes set up all over and the shepherds were there. Again, they, this, was, this was later than when the shepherds came. This is probably a year or maybe even as much as two years later, um, at least several months at the very least. There's now staying in a house in Bethlehem. But in come these foreign dignitaries. And they don't ask any questions. They're not there to just try to poke and, I don't know, pick apart his foreign policy. They fall on their face and they worship. That's what they do. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped. Then they opened their treasures. They offered to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. There's the story. Two implications, okay? And this is pretty simple. Number one, God is very serious about the worship of his son. God the Father is very serious about the worship of his son. One of the things you want to ask of any text when you're reading it is not just what the people are doing in the text, but what is God doing in the text. And the thing, although it might not be explicitly stated here, it's absolutely implicit and we should notice it, is that God literally moves the heavens moves a star to bring about the worship of his son. This is where worship starts. Worship starts with God. The Bible is so abundantly clear that there is no one righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek for God, Romans chapter 3. But God is at work then, and he is at work now, today, to bring about the worship of his son. I love what John Piper says in his little book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's what God is doing. God is working even today to bring about the worship of his son. And this is really, really good news. Because just like just like that star was in the night sky and it gave direction and it guided these, these magi, these wise men, to the place where they needed to go. This truth that God is working to bring about the worship of his son, it serves as a star to us. It serves as a light in the midst of darkness to give us some direction for our lives. I can't tell you probably one of the most prevalent questions that I get asked as a pastor by people, and I understand, I'm not poking at it, I'm not in any way making fun of it, I have asked it a thousand times, but they will ask again and again and again, and I ask the question, what is God's will for my life? Anybody ever ask that? Here is God's will for your life, that you worship Jesus, and he wants to use your life to bring about the worship of his son in other people as well. That's what he's doing. And we sit around and we think that purpose is all about us and it's all about me and my gifts and, and what I can do. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And the sovereign God of the universe is so passionate about the worship of his son and so has so purposed and declared that his son will be worshipped that he is literally willing and able to move the stars in the heavens to bring about that worship. He's absolutely passionate about it. The, the, you know, one of the things is you just very quickly, like, would kind of skim the scriptures. Um, 
looking at some of the context when the stars in the heavens are talked about, one of the things that, that seems to be implied when it talks about the stars in the heavens is that they're immovable. That there's something that is certain. That there's something that is sure. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky. And those who t- turn many to the righteous, like the stars, like the stars, listen, forever and ever. You hear it? Like the stars forever and ever. In Psalm 136, it says, To him who made the great lights, the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever, the sun to rule the day. His steadfast love endures forever, the moon and the stars to rule the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. It's why when the Bible talks in apocalyptic language about the end of all things when Jesus comes back, one of the things that it says is that many times it it uses this language of the stars falling from their place. Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 24. Speaking of those, those last days, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In other words, those things that you thought could never be shaken, they themselves will be shaken. And again, the point is this, is that God's declaration that his son will be worshipped is more certain than the stars that are fixed in the heavens. So folks, if you are lacking some clarity in your life this morning, if you're not sure where to go or what to do, and I'm sure all of us have areas of our life where we might feel this way, where we're just confused, I can tell you where to start. You can start by falling on your face and worshiping Jesus. Start there. And in 2023, for those of you that don't have any New Year's resolutions, how many New Year's resolutions people do have? You love New Year's resolutions? Anybody? No? You're discouraged by them? Okay, nobody's going to raise their hand. Let's make it our New Year's resolution to raise your hand when the pastor asks you to raise your hand. Just kidding. Here's a New Year's resolution for you. Set aside intentional time. And I'm serious here. A lot of times people, and I, I, I get it, I usually rant and get excited about Jesus. I'm not real good with practicals, but I'm about to give you something practical, okay? It's my gift to you. It's my Christmas gift to you, since I never do this. But, like, how would 2023 go differently for you if you would set aside, starting with just five minutes, literally just five minutes every day, where you literally got on your face and you didn't ask for anything, you didn't complain about anything, you didn't question anything, you just worshipped. You just worshipped. Knowing that it is God's purpose that, man, I, I, I might not know anything else. <laughs> I might not, I'm not sure how my finances are going to work out. Uh, I'm not I'm sure about how this relationship is going to work out. I'm not sure about how this job situation is going to work out. But one thing you can know for, for certain, you say, I know that God wants his son to be worshipped. Start there. God is very serious about the worship of his son. <coughs> it is what he's doing in the world today. Um, also, you see in the text here that no one is going to be able to stop this. Again, for the sake of time, we don't have time to really look at the entire chapter, but you see little glimmers of it where Herod, who's kind of a picture of all the powers of this world and of the world's, or kind of like the epitome of the world system, if you will, he is opposed to this. 
Um, and he is devising, he's scheming a plan. Again, he's not excited that the king has come. He's troubled by it. And all of Jerusalem troubled with him. And he's scheming this plan to destroy him. And you see uh, there at the end, although we didn't read this part in verse 12, that the wise men are warned in a dream after they worship Jesus to not return to Herod. And, and so they, they depart to their own country by another way. And Herod, if you'll jump down to verse 16, he flies into a rage. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent, and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained by the wise men. So he literally goes on a rampage of death, and yet, although he is a powerful king, and Jesus at this point in time-space history, as he comes in the incarnation, is just a little baby from a poor family, a young poor family who doesn't know a whole lot, you see that the worship of the Son will not be stopped, even though the powers that be oppose it. And folks, it's still the same today. No matter who the powers are, I don't care if the power's in the White House or in the Kremlin or in China, I don't care where it is. The sun is going to be worshipped. And the powers of this world are not able to stop it. Ever. And that is good news. Again, the worship of the sun is more certain than the, certain than the stars that are fixed in the heavens. In Psalm chapter 2, you, you really see a broad kind of picture or prophecy that is specifically fulfilled in this context here, in this story, in this account in Matthew chapter 2. But in Psalm chapter 2, listen to this kind of prophetic um, psalm from the mouth of David. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, just like Herod was doing. And they say, verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we will not bow to this king. We will not worship him. Verse 4, but God's response is this, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And he holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, God's saying this, he's saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So do you see the picture here? The kings are saying, we will not be ruled. We will not bow the knee. We will not worship. And God says, oh yes, you will. Oh yes, you will. Because I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. And the Lord goes on here, and then again, God, God continues to speak. He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then there's this gracious warning. It's a very serious warning, but it is an act of grace to warn the people of the world, including the kings and the rulers who are opposed to the worship of Jesus. Here is this gracious warning at the end of Psalm 2. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
Did you catch that? Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. So again, these truly were wise men because they, again, they come and they, and they worship. Now, again, I, not only is the worship of the sun absolutely certain, more certain than the stars that are fixed in the heavens, but if we can just zero in on the actual actions of these wise men for just a second, um, I, they really do serve as kind of a model for, I think, how Matthew wants us to understand that we are to receive this king into our lives. As again, his, his purpose in writing the gospel is to introduce us to Jesus as the king. Now, I, I'm saying this because it, maybe you assume that this is right, but really in the scriptures, not always are the actions of, of men something um, that are prescriptive. In other words, a lot of times it's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing what they've done, but it's not a prescription for us to follow. So for example, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home over the last couple months, we've been walking through the book of Judges, okay? The book of Judges, like everybody, including the rulers, including Gideon, including Samson, you know, a lot of these guys, like they are not a model of what to do. They're a model of what not to do. So many times when you see something in the Bible, just because it's there doesn't mean that it is a model to follow. However, I would argue that I think the wise men, Matthew, is setting them out there as a model for us. Nowhere else, not only in the gospel, but nowhere else anywhere in the Bible are they ever mentioned. And yet Matthew wants to introduce us to the king, and I believe he's showing us here at the beginning of his gospel the right response to this king that comes into the world and wants to come into our life. Now, I've already mentioned, you know, kind of the broad stroke is that, yes, their wisdom is that they worshiped. But again, I, I think that this is, this is driven home more when, when you understand the activity of God and what he's doing here. Again, all kings, all kings had their courts surrounded by these counselors. Okay? And that's what these wise men were. They were counselors to other kings and other rulers. Okay, and so, so all that to say, the kind of the captain obvious statement here is that, like, this is what they did. Giving counsel, sharing knowledge, like, you know, everybody's into, like, having, like, a life coach and stuff now. Like, they were, like, life coaches on steroids. Like, I'm, again, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying, like, like that's, well, that's kind of what they were. They gave advice. But they don't come to Jesus and offer any advice. They don't come to Jesus and try to give a list of 10 do's and 10 don'ts, and, well, I think if you, you know, to Mary and Joseph, if you, if you train them this way or if you do this, they just fall down and they just worship. And as you go on to read the rest of Matthew's gospel, again, I think this stands out. Their actions stand out just like the stars stood out moving in the heavens, in the night sky. It's because throughout the book of Matthew, you see all these questions again and again and again of who is he? Who is this king? Well, he says he's the Messiah, but is he really the Messiah? Well, he did that miracle, but is he doing that miracle by the, by the power of God or by the, by the power of the devil to the place where, and again, just kind of zooming out here and giving you kind of the, the cliff notes of the book of Matthew, one of the high points, one of the pinnacles, the crescendos of, of the book of Matthew is in Matthew chapter 16, where he's walking with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them this question. He says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say, you know, Elijah, or some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? It's this high point of the entire story that Matthew is, is telling us. 
And not only a high point of the story, but probably a high point of Peter's life. Because just for, just for 2.5 seconds, Peter gets it right. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, don't think that this wisdom or this right answer came from you, Peter. It's because my father has drawn you to him, just like he drew the wise men. Um, But no quicker (laughs) does Jesus say blessed to Peter than he begins to talk about the cross. And then, just like that, we see Peter doing what the wise men didn't do. And we see Peter doing what I think we all do, what I find myself doing at times, is we find ourselves in the presence of the king giving him counsel as though he needed it. Because Jesus, after that high point of confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus begins to talk about the cross and Peter immediately takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And I want you to understand here that <laughs> Peter, in, he begins to do what the wise men didn't do in offering counsel, but it's not because he didn't understand. It's not because he was just confused about what was actually happening. Peter was confused because he understood with clarity what Jesus was saying. And what Jesus was saying was, is that in order for his kingdom to come, is that he was going to have to go to a cross. And Peter was confused, not because Jesus stuttered or mumbled, but he was confused because his mind had no grid for how that could possibly be. And when we find ourselves in the presence of the king, and again, maybe you don't do this, but I do, Like, if I could just be really honest, a lot of times in my prayers when I stop and kind of get outside of myself and think about what I'm doing, I'm whining. I'm not really praying. I'm complaining. I'm offering counsel to the king of the universe as though he needed it. And he doesn't. Remember what, remember the book of Job? (laughs) Where... Job, he, he endures this suffering greatly. He was the most righteous man on the face of the earth, yet still a sinner. And, um, and he goes through all this great suffering, and he does it fairly well, and yet by the end, by the end, he, he just has this one question. He's like, okay, whatever, I'm going to endure it, but God, just you got, at least tell me why. And God shows up in the whirlwind, and the clouds and thick darkness come. And God says to Job, stand up, I will question you and you will answer me. And here's the first thing God says. He says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? How often we do the same thing. And how often we do it when the Lord begins to take us to the cross, just like he did Peter. Is that in our our grid of worldly success in our worldly ways and our worldly power structures and in our worldly wisdom we have no grid for the cross but folks if you want to embrace the kingdom of Jesus Christ and truly be able to pray with sincerity hallowed be your name and your kingdom come your will be done today and also in the upcoming year then here's what you're going to have to do you're going to have to put your hand over your mouth at times 
and you're going to have to just bow in worship. <laughs> That's it. That is the right response that I think Matthew is holding out here for us in this example of the wise men. And there's a lot that could be said. Notice their humility. These dignitaries, these men that spent time in the courts of kings, they come and they literally get on their face. And hear me, I understand that like we don't always, we don't always have to. Like, it's okay to say in prayer sometimes, Lord, we bow down before you and not actually bow down. But I just want to say this, and I'm serious. There's a times, though, where I'm, I'm, not, it's, I'm not just speaking in metaphor. There are times when you literally need to get on your face. And I would lovingly challenge you this morning, when's the last time you did that? When's the last time you literally got on your face as an act of worship to the God of the universe and the King who came to die for you? They showed real humility. It wasn't just lip service humility like Herod. And I want to point out here too that in their example, this is something that um, we could spend a lot of time on. I'm not, I'm not going to. But it's something that I just want to mention and it's, um, and it's important and we try to I don't know, reconcile this in our minds sometimes in a way that just doesn't work. But it, it's this, is that f for the wise men, I'll say it this way, within this context of this story, is that allegiance to Jesus means not giving allegiance to Herod. Do you understand? Allegiance to Jesus means not giving allegiance to Herod or to the ways of this world, the kings of this world, the powers of this world, the desires of this world, the influencers of this world. And this is something that, it, it, if I, and this is a really broad stroke, you're like, Eric, that's not fair, that's okay, we can still love each other, but I'm going to say it anyway, and I'm not just saying it about you, but I'm saying it about myself too. But if there's one thing that I, I think, if, if I had to like sum up, American Christianity is we think we can serve both Jesus and Herod. Folks, we can't. You just can't. That's not a thing. I know in American Christianity we've made it a thing. We've made it this thing that, oh yeah, you can worship Jesus then. Let's go. It's not a thing according to the Bible. The I'm sorry, the, uh, the wise men, Herod, the, the earthly king that they'd met with and seen their faces, knows who they are. He says, come back and tell me. But they're warned by God in a dream. And so they, de they depart. They, they, they trick him. They go another way. Because again, allegiance to Jesus means not giving allegiance to Herod. And I know that's a little bit heavy, but we're just going to land hard and fast right there. <laughs> Worship team, you can come up. And we're going to close. <laughs> the good news is that God sent his son not just to be born, 
but to be born of a virgin, lived a pure, righteous, holy life, and then died the death that we deserve to die. He died in our place as our substitute. And for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, in 2023, we're going to be walking through the book of Romans for the entire year, Lord, Lord, Lord willing. The primary question that's asked throughout the book of Romans and the way that Paul frames the good news of the gospel isn't how can I be loved, how can I have more self-esteem, how can I have more purpose for my life, how can I, um, how can I be a better neighbor, how can I be a better employee. The way Paul frames the entire argument in the book of Romans is this, how can I be made righteous? How can a sinner who hasn't bowed the knee to Jesus, but who has bowed to Herod and every other worldly desire and pleasure that's out there, how can we be made righteous? And the answer is, because God sent his son to take for us the punishment that we deserved. And that it is only through faith in this son and in his sacrifice, in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. And by faith, I don't just mean lip service like Herod. I don't just mean mental assent to, oh yeah, that's probably true, it probably happened. Oh yeah, I've been taught that since I was a little kid. What I mean by faith, faith is, is I mean falling on your face and giving your allegiance to the one true king. That's what it means. That's the good news of the gospel. The question is, will you respond like a wise man? Will you respond in worship? Will you respond in bowing the knee to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for making your purposes, not just for our lives, but for the entire world, the entire universe. We thank you that you've made them clear. That you're not a God who just plays games with us or teases us, but that you have made the path clear and that you call everyone to bow the knee to your son. That you don't just suggest it, but that you command it. That we repent and that we believe in Jesus. And Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who does not know you as their personal Savior. I pray that right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would awaken their hearts to believe you and to trust you and to bow the knee to the name that is above every other name. Lord, I pray that we go forward, as we go forward in this coming year, we pray that more people at Mercy Hill would come to know Jesus Christ come to believe in him and to fall on their face before him. And Lord, for those of us that, that know you as Savior, Lord, I pray that you would show us, I pray you'd convict us where other priorities, where other allegiances are, are battling and sometimes, many times, winning the day against allegiance to Jesus. 
Help us to turn to you again and again and again in worship. We thank you for calling us to this. We thank you for creating us for this. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys stand with me.